Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Back Half, the New Statesman's Culture Podcast with me, Tom. And me, Kate. Kate, there was a a little bit of a a buzz around our corner of the office uh, yesterday when the trailer for the new Freddie Mercury biopic was put out. Did you have a look at it? I did have a look. A film that we never thought was going to be made and still may not be made somehow. Has this been? <laughs> Maybe in, they've just made a trailer. Has this been in in the works for years? Then for well, at least since twenty ten. Right. Famously, Sasha Baron Cohen. Yes, of course. Yeah, who, I'd, I'd kind of completely forgotten that. Yeah, Brian May later described as an ass. So they basically fired Sasha Baron Cohen because Queen are just very difficult to work with and, and they want to protect the legacy of Freddie. And their idea of doing that is to sort of, to a certain extent, not show his wildness and not focus on his death and all that kind of thing. Anyone who's working with them is in a difficult bind because it's like you've got to do this very kind of cleaned up version of, of his life. Is that because they don't want him to overshadow the achievements of the band or is that because they want to protect his... There'll be a bit of wanting to protect it, but there's also, of course, the question that they've been continuing without him since 2001 right. now. Right, so and it's not the end of Queen. Well, yeah. no, exactly. And if you look at interviews with them after he died, they're sitting there saying there's absolutely no way we can continue, this is it. And then somehow they've recalibrated their brains to the mm. idea that actually it was just the Freddie phase of Queen that ended in 1991 and Queen has been a strong and powerful force ever since. So there's a bit of that going on, I think. There's a bit of the sort of Alan Partridge, like, not sure about the Beatles, but Wings. There's a a band you can get behind. (laughs) Freddie Mercury era Queen, not so sure. Post Freddie, yes, bring it on. Patchy, patchy. I did watch the trailer and it was really bizarre to see these kind of rather strange-faced, ugly actors playing the band. Not that they're a pretty band, because they're not, but you're so used to the, the sort of shapes of their of their faces and Brian's long nose and Roger's pretty face and mm. Freddie's teeth. And it's just very discombobulating to watch actors playing them. But one thing that I did think is that they really got the voices quite good, the talking voices. Mm. So the only bit of dialogue in the trailer is Freddie saying in his strange, clipped kind of Indian posh accent... This is where the opera section comes in and then Brian May going, the opera section. But I mean, I can't do their voices. Yeah. It sounds exactly like them. So it's like they've really worked on the uh, the intonation. But yeah, there's no suggestion from the trailer what, what the film's actually about. Yeah. It's just sort of scenes of him on stage with some dramatic And beats. presumably is um, Queen is behind it then. So they will, it's not one of those mad ones where 
there will be no Queen music in it. No, they're totally behind yeah, it. Well, exactly, out. that's the problem of yeah. most uh, rock biopics yeah. is they're not allowed any, like that terrible Jimi Hendrix one. Oh, I liked that. <laughs> Which just has him like doing one wow wow on the guitar and then it changes scene because they yeah. couldn't get any real Hendrix music. But I think they got away with that by kind of putting it in a very early, it was like a, right at the beginning of his career, wasn't it, coming to London? Yeah. <laughs> Divided the audience. I feel like the Queen one, I may be wrong about this, but I think it finishes at Live Aid or something like right. that. Right. Or it sort of focuses on Live right. Aid. Oh. Right. But that's not even what we're talking about today. No. But we, are, we do have quite a heavily music-themed episode of the podcast today. We will be talking about the, not the, Arctic Monkeys without the definite article. <laughs> Spent all week subbing out the definite article from mentions of Arctic Monkeys in, in the magazine. Arctic Monkeys' new album... Tran- Hotel <laughs> Tranquility Hotel Basin Casino. Yes, is that right? Yes, amazing. Yeah, fictional kind of space station hotel. If you sort of sing it in your head, you can you can get it right. And we'll also be talking about mood music, which is the new play by Joe Penhall on at the Old Vic, which is about a kind of creative differences case within the music industry, which we went to see last night. And we've got our fifty millionth anniversary, the cultural event of no great significance. So, Kate, we went to see Mood Music at the Old Vic last night. This is a new play by Joe Penhall, who has got pretty very career, actually. He did the film adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's The Road at one end of the spectrum, and then at the other end, the uh, Kinks musical Sunny Afternoon. <gasps> did he do that yeah, too? Yeah. <laughs> and then most recently... And your favourite. The Mindhunter. Yeah. The Mindhunter. The Mindhunter. <laughs> Um, the Mindhunter, which was the look at you know the the history of criminal profiling on serial killers. So it's quite a good, it's quite a kind of broad career. Yeah. Um, so what what's he focused on here? Well, in this, he's he's focusing on a, a story of a young protege and a very successful record producer who's probably in his mid forties, late forties, fictional, both of them, who get into a big legal wrangling over the. Um, over sort of intellectual copyright theft of songs between one another. And it turns into this very intense, uh, very focused play where there are two therapists involved as well, delving into the motivations behind both of the characters for entering the music industry in the first place. And there are also two lawyers who are trying to set up these cases against one another. And Ben Chaplin plays um, the the main uh, the this music producer himself, and they've obviously gone out to John Varvatos, and they've kitted him out in perfect music industry wear, like those kind of jeans that are expertly distressed and hang just the right way. John uh, Varvatos being the the, the rock uh, coutier. Yes, the dresser uh, of the stars. Choice, yeah. He's got Converse on um, yeah. and he's got a kind of strange leathery sort of shirt and he's even got his glasses clipped uh, on his collar in exactly the right way and, and a load of bracelets he did as have well. the bracelets, yeah. <laughs> and he walks around in this kind of very teenage fashion and one of the my favourite lines in the whole play is that one of the therapists points out that cognitive development stops when you get famous. So a lot of 17-year-olds are trapped in the body of middle-aged men in yeah. the music industry. His social cognition may be retarded. Says, yeah. <laughs> Retardation is common yeah. within the industry. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to, to look at first off, you just think this is utterly convincing. Yeah, yeah. He was totally convincing and um, th- th- he's he's taken on this young singer from Dublin called Cat, played by Shauna Kerslake. 
and there he's he's a musical hero of hers this guy uh, his, na- his name is bernard which just makes me think of guess who <laughs> <laughs> because i took my kids to this comedy thing recently and we had to play a live version of guess who but the the comedian kept on saying that whenever he played guess who it was always bernard always it was bernard, bernard. He, didn't he have a ginger toupee <laughs> I think and a moustache yeah, yeah. yeah why did that stick out in <laughs> the in the memory <laughs> So Bernard is a musical hero of hers. So she's kind of thrilled to be uh, working with him at last. And they actually do produce some music and they have a hit. And then it just, the relationship unravels. And Ben Chaplin, as the play goes on, Ben Chaplin shows you just how sort of poisonous a character this guy is. And it's sort of his play, isn't it? I mean, he gets he gets the best lines. He's really... As a character, he kind of dominates the stage. Yeah. I mean, which is appropriate because that's what his his character does. He dominates. He dominates the room. The room he's in. One of the, his lines that chilled me the most, as it, as the kind of true sort of emptiness of his personality is revealed, <laughs> he shouts at her. Good songs do not have a heart; they have a void. Mm. There is a void at the centre of them, and we fill it with our own emotions. Yeah. And it's like it's the most nihilistic thing you could possibly say about the most beautiful thing in the world, which is music. So it's, it's this this dichotomy of of like this thing that has the same uh, stimulus in your mind as the feelings of love, and then a lot of the very damaged people that create it. And I thought that was one of the most powerful things in the whole the whole concept that you know it pulls people in who have holes within them who have difficult lives who are kind of mining themselves for suffering and then it creates something which other people take enormous comfort in and think is wonderful and great i think it really nailed that but it's a great motif for the whole play actually but he's he's an interesting one because he is sort of it comes up at one point but he's sort of a psycho borderline psychotic character so the he definitely has a void in his heart but there's no sense that the music itself is actually filling it in any way. So although he's getting, you know, he gets sucker from from his success, he's not actually, there's, there's sort of no emotional connection with the music whatsoever. Yeah, she says, I'm, I'm trying to do something fresh and different. He says, I'm trying to make a hit record. Yeah. So really that's the motivation. What I loved was the way it's straight in at the deep end with the, um, the nitty gritty of what this kind of uh, copyright theft thing is all hooked mm. around, which is that she's written a song and um, she's playing him an opening chord progression on the piano. He comes in and he tells her to put suspensions on some of the chords, yeah. meaning that taking the idea of the consonant notes, which is that everything sounds kind of rounded and satisfying and nice to the ear, and then changing the harmonics underneath them to create a feeling of tension and weirdness and stuff. So he's he's told her to do this. And then, of course, when the whole thing kicks off, he says, well, it was my idea for you to put those suspensions on those chords. And she says, but they were my chords in the mm. first place. So once you're dealing with that kind of level of intricacy, you think, oh my God, this such it's such a gray area, this whole business of music plagiarism. Like who came up with it first and, and whose idea influenced that note or that note? It's really good that because it actually brings in these sort of very specific and legalistic ideas without ever kind of slowing down the action. And I should say, I don't want to get too deep into it, but I should just say that the action is really, I was thinking about this afterwards, really expertly and elegantly choreographed, given that you've got Bernard and Cap, but you have these two lawyers and these two therapists working around them. And the dialogue intercuts constantly. And occasionally you even get people sort of chipping in on other people's scenes. But for most of the play, I was sort of completely, it just 
worked naturally for me. I wasn't, I was sort of barely aware of it, which is a real sign that that, that that works, I think. Yeah, there'll be a moment where actually they address each other in the middle of their kind of separated court case kind of scenes. And you realise that that's harking back to them in the studio in, in the better days, kind of mm. six months earlier. And it's totally effortless the way, the way that happens. Another kind of big theme of the play is um, Kat says, when she's getting very exasperated, she's saying, if I write a riff, people assume he wrote it. Men write riffs, not women. It drives me mad. People always assume a man wrote the songs. That rings true, definitely, doesn't it? That you get the sense that people are much more willing to believe that, you know, an Adele or or someone like that needed help in the recording studio, whereas you know Ed Sheeran probably mm. just does it all on his on his guitar. One of the the main um, things that's sort of stoking that belief is that we obviously we're interested in the craft of songwriting now in these kind of camps and and the way that sort of a Katy Perry or somebody is encouraged to write a song and it always starts off with what they call a kind of almost like a pseudo therapy session where the young artist often a female artist will come in and talk about the issues in her life that have been troubling her and you have this idea whether it's true or not that they take one or two choice lines from that uh, sort of so-called therapy session and then they work them up into a chorus so it always starts from the point of emotion in inverted right. commas um and is that then kind of like how so adele's rolling in the deep was with epworth paul epworth yeah yeah, um, yeah and like i think that was kind of they sat down and wrote that together but i think it is quite and you know it's a very emotional song and feels quite personal as well yeah and i know i've interviewed egg white once who did um chasing pavements yeah. and uh, warwick avenue for duffy and stuff and it is yeah maybe it's part of the the sort of perpetuation of this idea that you always start from well you know what was hurting her at that point and what was her her latest relationship and stuff and yeah sure that's going to that's going to kick off the album because the album's got to be about the singer Mm. But it doesn't mean that the singer isn't writing the riffs. Mm. So, and, and actually, there was a study done uh, last year that revealed that of the 600 most popular songs in the last five years, only 12.3% of them were written by women. This was like the University of Arizona or somewhere like that did this study. And you're thinking, yeah, but how do we know? Like, after mm. plays like this, how do we really know who wrote what, who wrote what chord, you know? The crisis with this is that he he's such a stubborn, psychotic character that he will not give her any credit on the songwriting but when you if you look up songs you know like chasing pavements or rolling in the deep or or any of these often there'll be a co-writing credit you know often with the producer or or if not another another songwriter and of course you know unless you were in that room and even if you were in that room you've got no idea whether is that a 50 50 split is it a 60 40 is it a 70 30 split or is it um, tiny on the songwriter or like is it, yeah i mean look at beyonce's songwriting camp she has them and everyone goes and lives there for 10 days and she walks in and out of rooms going i like that line i don't like <laughs> yeah. that one it's not that necessarily she's writing that line but she's giving her thumbs up or down to it and that involves her then getting a credit among five other people on the writing of the song yeah. it's it's kind of crazy so i can see it from both from both ways it must be frustrating if the artist didn't do anything Mm. But they, he points out in the play that they use kind of the idea of creative control as a carrot now to get young artists into record contracts. And sometimes it's just bollocks. It's just there on paper to like make out that you're involved when you're not. In some ways, the whole thing is sort of two hours of extreme mansplaining, isn't there? I mean, he's, <laughs> he's like, he's so, he's so awful and oppressive in the way that he, you know, she's obviously talented and... He gets these young singers in by telling them they're the most exciting singer he's ever heard. And then he just, and then that tap's turned off and the mansplaining tap is turned on. <laughs> and it's very, it's painful to watch the um, scenes where that 
start off as mansplaining and then go into kind of almost borderline psychological torture where he's sort of getting her to play a kind of three three four uh rhythm uh guitar sequence and saying that she's not counting three properly <laughs> and it just and then he gets a cowbell out and starts banging it in her ear counting three and then when she does it stronger he's like i didn't want to fucking waltz yeah faster <laughs> louder stronger quieter one thing i did struggle with with it and this is just the problem of trying to i mean rachel cook wrote about this in her review of the the picasso program about um on national geographic the idea of portraying creativity on stage or on screen is just really really difficult i didn't get any particular sense of them dovetailing at all musically i mm. mean not only is it obviously not possible to listen to the songs at length that they're making but there was that feeling of um god they're, they're interrupting each other after two or three seconds and arguing over every creative step that doesn't feel to me like a a natural kind of uh, musical bond or something but maybe that's just hard to I don't know. I think it is hard to show, isn't it? And and the interest for them was obviously in in the souring of the relationship. But yeah, I think they could have they could have possibly done more to show what it might have been like when it was working because they did write they did they're supposed to have written hit records together. The other thing to say about it is just that uh, there are a couple of just great lines in this in this play. Um, ben Chaplin's character, you know, I mean, he makes the usual jokes about drummers and bassists and things, but on singers you know they have to project into a song sensitivity and complexity and tremendous feeling when quite often they're actually quite thick uh, <laughs> singers have to empty their minds in order to sing and then they stay that way <laughs> you know some really good um some really good punch lines drummers can't feel pain they're like fish yeah. <laughs> but that's again that was a slight kind of took slight issue with this it's a bit like watching mindhunter in that the the, the men get the great lines, right? Yeah. The men are the fully fleshed out, three-dimensional, yeah. fascinating, charismatic characters with hints of psychotic behavior. Mm. And the women are, in her case, she's, she's very troubled, but she also, she doesn't have any funny lines. No. Um, she's upset all the time. And her female therapist is also quite a bland character. And the male therapist is very much bland. more witty. Yeah. And I think maybe his interest is in he really likes psychopaths. That's his his area of expertise. Yeah. And he's looking at psychopaths in Mindhunter or in the music industry. And maybe he could cover himself by saying there are more psychopath men than there are women. That's who I'm getting into here. Mm. But he he could have done, she could have been a lot more of a playful um, and stronger character, I thought. At one point, she sort of crosses her eyes and sticks out her tongue at, <laughs> at him. But um, yeah, no, I completely agree, especially on the therapist where the male therapist is quite developed and actually comes out with some quite probing, interesting stuff. He basically ends up sacking Ben Chapman because he's not getting anywhere with him. The female therapist is very much of a kind of, how does that make you feel? Yeah. Story? And also really struggling with her emotion. Like she's, She feels like she was kind of trying to suppress fright at her charge a lot of the time or anger and mm. stuff. And I thought that's strange for a therapist. But um, um, Do we know if he was inspired by any real cases of, of he this says sort of not, but relationship? It's, it's been... Um, it's been suggested there's an awful lot of, lot of Keisha and Dr. Luke in this. And also, in terms of the psychological... So she, of, that's the American sort of singer-rapper who um, sued her producer for kind of emotional abuse and, and sexual abuse. And sexual abuse, yeah. 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 So there isn't necessarily there's, any hint of that in this. Yeah. And he wrote this before Me Too and everything. Right. It's just a brilliantly timed thing. And also, I think the lines, of course, about people not thinking that women are writing the music that's heavily inspired by Bjork's point about people not believing that she was programming her own beats and doing her own engineering and electronics and stuff like that so yeah. it has been flying around for a while I think it's helped that it was written before the Me Too stuff but it can't help but chime 
a little bit, you know, when he gets up after he's winning this Ivan Novello and he does all this, you know, he's a little bit overdone this, but, you know, he's like, music is beyond gender. There's no sexism in music. Music's just a feeling, you know, and like, you know, obviously now music is music is gender and politics. It's barely anything else but gender and politics yeah. and race and all these things. Penhall says that he doesn't think that the music industry is inherently patriarchal. He thinks it's the commercial aspect of it that does all this damage. So it is mm. literally about what what will sell and mm. everyone's under the same pressure of, of, of selling. So that was kind of an interesting point. And I don't know if he's right. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I think Lily Allen came out recently saying that, you know, there just need to be a lot more female producers in the industry to kind of redress this, these sort of problems. But God, that's an obvious, that's a really obvious point, but actually quite a compelling one because presumably, you know, it's the same in the film, in the film industry, the, Although the the talent is often female, the the directors and producers are are so often male. I mean, there's five, half a dozen working female producers, I think, in pop in this mm. country. There's very very few. I mean, I may be wrong about that. Yeah. But, um, they in terms of the names. Yeah. They're not they're not that common. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, mood music is on at the Old Vic until sixteenth of June. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Kate, you've been listening to Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino by Arctic Monkeys mm. this week, and you've reviewed it in the magazine. Mm. What's your <laughs> takeaway? It's their sixth record. Um, and quite a long time since five, four, yeah, five years? Yeah, about five years. So he, I think he went over to LA. I feel like it's around 2013 or something. And the last one was, there was a Josh Homme presence on the last one and the previous one. And they were kind of much more um, riff-driven, kind of desert rock, Lots of bangers, lots of live songs. And this one, he's sort of sat down at a Steinway that someone gave him for his 30th birthday, which puts it all into perspective. Someone gives you a Steinway. His manager, yeah. I think he came back from a 30th birthday trip and opened the door and there was the Steinway in his house. <laughs> Probably <laughs> white on a sheepskin rug, I'd imagine, <laughs> with a line of cocaine on the top. And um, Imagine it in a sandpit like Brian was. Yeah. <laughs> And he wrote these uh, tracks, which is kind of, he was interested by the idea that science fiction allows you to explore very close issues in a slightly different setting, just slightly removed from your own. So it's not a kind of wild and wacky thing. And he lives in LA and that's kind of like science fiction to English people anyway. He wrote these, this collection of songs and then he took them to the band. And the drummer, I think it was, said, this is a solo record. <laughs> and he argued back. So the band played on it and they got like half a dozen other people, people out of Tame Impala and everything playing on there. Um, to me, it's it's kind of 
fascinating album and it definitely sounds like an Alex Turner solo album. Mm, yeah. What did you does. think? Well, let's hear a li- little bit of it first. This is four stars out of five. Sorry, that wasn't four stars out of five. That was four out of five. No stars. But the key oh, line in that is... Because he sings four stars Yeah, the, the, the key line is four stars out of five, but he dropped that for the title for some reason. I actually love this record. I'm deep into it now. It's not really an Arctic Monkeys record. I think I think you're absolutely right. But um, it resets one of the things that was so appealing about them in the first place, which is his lyrical... I won't say genius, but mm. his um, his real knack for smart witty clever knotty lyrics and i guess he's he's now 12 years older yeah. i think it's 2006 they started yeah. so he's he's you know he's really he's not singing about dance floors and and stuff he's 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 getting he's he's singing about the films he's watching and the books he's reading and it's a really like dense erudite packed record but it sort of nods back to the the origins of the band as well. You know, the first line on the first song is "I just wanted to be one of the Strokes," <laughs> which is a great which is a great opener. The sound of it is initially a bit kind of jarring, um, but I think it kind of creates its own sound world in a really effective way. What are you feeling about the voice? Because I find that I just find the voice inherently difficult. But actually, once you stick with it for a couple of tracks. I just kind of, I, when I first put it on, I was like, who really lies down on the sofa and enjoys listening to Alex Turner's voice <laughs> with a cup of tea? I know people do, but it's so, it's so exaggerated now. And yeah. it's so, um, so rich. And I keep thinking it's like drinking Baileys or something yeah. like that. It's got that cloying kind of, of thing. But also to me, it just sounds more and more like 70s Lennon in a kind of brilliant way, like in a sort of. Um, particularly with the American connection now, that sort of sealed off, strange, yes. spacey place that he's in. With he's lost his accent a bit, and he's sort of everything's a bit slower. There's less trying to cram gags in, you know, throwing puns and lines over your shoulder and stuff. It's much more measured, and it just feels like a much more mature character singing. I love the sense of alienation in it. I love mm. that line about um, he's really captured something about the tyranny of of modern pop culture. He says something like, um, we're all floating on a barge down an, a, an endless stream of great, great TV. TV. <laughs> and that, I feel that about like, you know, every new Netflix thing. I'm yeah. thinking like, well, well, what can we do? We can't say they're good or bad. We can literally just run to catch up with them. That's what we do. And journalism's turning into people just narrating what television shows are about rather than saying whether they're any good or not. And I just love that. And I also love the line sort of <laughs> echoes somebody saying to him, what do you mean you haven't seen Blade Runner? <laughs> yeah, that's <was> fantastic. <laughs> and I read an interview with him where he said, um, he loves it when people say that kind of thing to him because he loves the kind of the jar of what they think he is like compared to what he really is. No, I haven't seen it. What are you mm. talking about? No, and you can imagine him just writing the, all these things down. There's also a great bit where he, there's a whole kind of sequence where he talks about a great new documentary that he's just seen and he's been listening to the soundtrack in his car and the opening <laughs> sequence is fantastic and stuff. And it's just, it's, <laughs> it's brilliant. And it, there is a bit of a persona to it, which... Um, I mean, he's weirdly said it is really autobiographical. And he said 
he said in an interview I read, he said that the 11 songs were like him having a word with himself intermittently over 11, 11 tunes. Um, but you're right about 70s Lennon. I think the, I was thinking about the kind of reference points for this and they are all 70s. They're, he loves Dion. He loves Dion's mid 70s period. It reminded me a bit of Surf's Up by the Beach Boys, mm. 1971, like that really rich Van Dyke Parks lyrics mm. and kind of slightly freaky, spacey sound. Um, he's also a, a bit obsessed with Serge Gainsbourg's mm. Histoire de Melodie Nelson. So it's the French lounge they and the American lounge yeah. rather than the yeah, rather than the English Tony Christie, Richard Hawley kind of yeah. lounge. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you're right. I, you, I think... I can't remember whether you just said this or wrote, wrote, wrote it in your piece, but you sort of pick it up expecting it to sound a bit like Richard Hawley. And yeah, it's, it's not... I just thought it was going to sound a lot more, um, I just, you know, something very kind of um, pert and contained about his melodies a lot mm. of the time and, and and quite sort of sweet about them. And then you, you're just listening out for the, the sort of barbs in the words. And this is just bizarre. I mean, it changes time signatures all the time. They're, they're written on the piano and you can hear when songs are written on the piano because they meander in weird ways. Like there's no one there to to rein him in. And I just think that's, I think it's interesting that um, the reviews of it have been quite, quite mixed. And some people struggle with this sort of sense of musical experimentation because they think that that means an artist has lost their way. Mm. Well, I think they're finding it. Mm. Like they're, they're kind of going, well, where can I go next? You know. Any other favorite lines from the record? I like the one, um, I never, I'm never very good at remembering full lines, but I like the one where he says something, I'm um, sort of hanging around in my underpants I might form a covers band. I've got it here. Do we t- Go on, do it. <laughs> Dancing in my underpants. I'm going to run for government. I'm going to form a covers band. Yeah. Back there by the baby ground, did Mr. Winter Wonderland say, come here, kid, we really need to talk. Bear with me, man. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> that is the proper, that's the the young genius rock star who's, who's facing potentially being washed up in yeah. Los Angeles, like isolated from home and what do you do next? And are you still a genius? And, you know, I think it's just, it's almost reminds me of that kind of um, risky business scene, I suppose, the dancing in the underpants, a huge mansion with him rattling around in it. Yeah. Or like you say, like John Lennon in his New York apartment, wherever it was on the umpteenth floor like near central park kind of again like you can imagine him like wandering around in his underpants yeah. <laughs> i have to say that the more i become interested in him as an emerging musician the more i just wish he would attach himself to some kind of political cause and use his ability to write amazing couplets and one-liners to kind of do something a bit more you know focused on something mm. other than himself and it's it, it sort of it's weird that you you want you want that to be I just think he could he could do something amazing if he mm. actually got, you know. Yeah, because he's got that ability to skewer and satirise, hasn't he? I mean, another great line in Batphone, I launched my fragrance called Integrity to sell the fact that I can't be bought. He could do great things, yeah. but he doesn't have to. Because maybe like our, our producer in mood music, he was frozen at the age of 19, <laughs> suffering some kind of retardation of the mind. Who knows? He's obviously well, able to continue creating good stuff. but Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're in your 30s and living in LA with your supermodel girlfriend then you know that that's great in some ways yeah it's great why should he be doing anything else (laughs) he did on the the advice of a a friend he was um he was told to stop writing about love for this album which I thought was great the good advice I think yeah Yeah. because the love stuff had got I mean it wasn't really about it was all about sex anyway wasn't it yeah there's not much love in Arctic Monkeys records like AM is all, you know, I'm the one before, come and have a spin on my propeller. It's all that kind of like, <laughs> it's all that really um, fairly blunt sex metaphor <laughs> stuff. 
Anyway, Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino is out now on Domino Records. So, Tom, you have our non-anniversary for us this week. Let me just consult the non-anniversary files. The non-anniversary this week, Kate, is Willow, ah. uh, which was released 30 years ago this week. This minute. There, thereabouts, May 20th, 1988. Collaboration between George Lucas and Ron Howard. So... Um, Ron Howard, who had just directed Cocoon, I think, mm. and wanted to do a fantasy film. Lucas, who'd had this story sitting around since Star Wars to do a kind of proper sword and sorcery film, and the two of them, and they'd worked together on American Graffiti, uh, which Lucas directed and Ron ha- Have you seen American Graffiti? No. Oh, my God. <laughs> I can't believe it's you haven't so, seen Blade Runner. It's so- <laughs> Uh, it's just wonderful. And um, I love Ron Howard. Um, and he in, in American Graffiti, he plays a kind of more serious version of the character he plays in Happy Days. Mm. You know, preppy, preppy kid. Hadn't uh, Lucas... It's also got Harrison Ford in it. Oh. In a brilliant, brilliant role. Sorry. Lucas had worked with Warwick Davis before, right? So he was in Return of the Jedi. He played an Ewok. He played an Ewok in Return of the Jedi. And that's when he said, I think you'd be good in... Uh, in um his exact words wasn't it i thought it'd be great to use a little person in the lead role because his films are all about the little person against the system yeah i think that the the trailer is like heroes come in all shapes and sizes (laughs) (laughs) it's a kind of you know it's a sort of weird jesus narrative actually baby will save the world which has been cursed by some evil sorceress and baby is ends up in the hands of Warwick Davis, who's a sort of trainee magician, who then teams up in a classic little and large combo with um, Val Kilmer, who's actually really funny as a kind of dopey mercenary who sort of keeps on trying to impress people and and falls over and has this this very, very 80s, like, I can't really describe it, but like, um, two like little braids coming down from the from just from two, his hair. just two, just on one side, just two thin braids. Yeah. <laughs> Did you like it at the time? Yeah, I loved it. I absolutely loved it, and I, it's a real, um, it's a very kid oriented. I mean, it's become a cult. It's become a cult classic, but it's really, um, it's it's for kids basically. And there's the there's all this sort of comic relief from these like tiny, they're called brownies, like little sprite figures who completely unexplained but speaking French accents <laughs> which in retrospect I think is quite quite good quite good decision. nowadays you'd have to explain that wouldn't yeah, you there'd be yeah, Guardian think be pieces some... about why they're French but um is it racist the uh, the interesting thing about this is that um no one wanted to distribute it because fancy films don't sell that was the that was the thinking at the time even though Star Wars had been a huge hit they didn't they're like okay sci- sci-fi sells now even though at the time of Star Wars, people were like, "This, this is going to be a complete disaster," and there'd been a few um, like commercially unsuccessful fantasy films, including Labyrinth, which is of course yeah. now another cult classic. What about Neverending Story then, Dark Crystal, and things like that? Do you think, or were they later? I don't know. I, I, I don't feel like know. they were late eighties as well. They were possibly later, and they, they may have come, you know, after because this was a commercial success, and so this may have kind of slightly kickstarted mm. a bit of a that kind of like family fantasy genre but uh yes willow happy happy 30th birthday willow
thank you for listening to this episode of the back half we will be back in a fortnight in the meantime do get in touch i'm on twitter and we have an email address <gasps> email technology email us some abuse please um which is the back half podcast at gmail.com mm-hmm. we've been edited by caroline crampton thanks to domino records for the arctic monkeys clip and we're not going to play you out with arctic monkeys we're going to play you out with our regular end music that makes sound really exciting i could have bolstered this up a bit our bollock bashing pistol jazz with godspeed Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.